welcome to the Proximo podcast. This is your host, Maisie Clark, reporting to you from London. On today's podcast, I'm pleased to welcome back Alan Marks for what is sure to be an informative and insightful discussion on the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act. Alan is a partner in Millbank's Global Projects Energy and Infrastructure Finance Group. He has been at the firm for over 30 years and has advised clients on a wide range of innovative transactions in renewable energy, transportation, water, digital infrastructure, ports, airports, and other sectors. Alan has taught for many years at the University of California, Berkeley, in both the Law School and the Haas School of Business, and he hosts his own wide-ranging Law, Policy and Markets podcast. Focused on energy and infrastructure project development and finance and M&A, Alan is currently working for the sponsors of multiple large offshore wind projects under development in New York and Massachusetts, and on other renewable energy projects. Alan represented the lenders financing the 9.5 billion new Terminal 1 at JFK Airport, which recently closed. In the past year or so, he has also closed the largest ever private placement of sustainability-linked notes for a global container shipping company, the acquisition of several freight rail assets, the sale of private equity-backed solar CNI developer, and the creative tax-exempt green bond project financing of an agricultural waste-to-energy plant. Alan, it's great to welcome you and your expertise back onto the podcast today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be back, maybe. So signed into law by President Biden on the 16th of August, the nearly 740 million climate tax and healthcare bill, the slightly peculiarly titled Inflation Reduction Act, has delivered one of the most significant shakeups in the US tax equity market since its inception. The headline feature of the Inflation Reduction Act is an increase in the amount of PTCs and ITCs that can be claimed if projects are built in favoured locations using US content or their labour is paid the prevailing federal wage. What impact is this likely to have on renewables developers and, I guess, tax equity providers? Yeah, that's a good question, Maisie. I mean, I think there's a significant impact on the market that um, the bill brings. And we can get into detail in a minute, but on what it will mean both for developers and for tax equity providers. I think stepping back for a moment, one of the challenges in the past has been that tax credits favoring certain renewable technologies would step down or phase out in you know relatively short time periods. And it, that makes it difficult, I think, for companies to have long-term planning for what their new pipelines would be. It also tends to mean that people have to rush towards the finish line, even though it keeps getting pushed back. And uh, with this, we now have a much longer runway, and that's going to allow for a buildup in domestic manufacturing. Uh, think of wind uh, power components, of solar power components, uh, other things that go into other clean technologies. There's, with the incentives in this bill, not just for manufacturing, but for development, there's customers for those things, and there will be for a long, long time to come. Uh, secondly, I think the amount of money that's now available to, in essence, subsidize those types of investment, uh, it's larger. It's, it's, it's just a significant amount of money over the, the next decade or so. And I would expect that that's going to attract uh, more investment, uh, which is, by the way, the point of the bill. I mean, that's what it's designed to do, and I think it will do that. Now, for tax equity providers, uh, you know, here we've got changes in the bill. We can you know, look at some of them in more detail if you like with respect to direct pay and transferability and uh, some of the requirements for uh, the tax credits, both production tax credits, investment tax credits, and then also the new clean energy tax credit regime that will replace them. All of those things, I, I think, you know, expand opportunities for companies that need uh, tax deductions or tax credits and can take advantage of them against other taxable income. It creates more opportunities and, again, a longer runway, more predictable rules, things that then make it worthwhile for uh, uh, people who are not currently investing in, in these tax credits to do so. 
I still think that the world of tax equity investors will remain, especially at the larger end, confined mainly to banks, uh, maybe large public companies that you know, need a tax shield. Uh, you're not going to see a rush of you know, doctors, dentists, and you know, lawyers you know, investing in these things. These are, these are still going to remain tax credits that are basically um, used by uh, a fairly small pool of very large investors. Yeah, and the US has always been unique in using the tax system to encourage renewable energy development. And I think it would be good to give our listeners just a brief bit of background on the two types of tax credits used, the PTC or production tax credit and the ITC, the investment tax credit. How have they functioned historically? So historically in the United States, we subsidize, uh, we use the tax code, as, as you're correct, to subsidize investments in renewable power. Uh, there are other sources like geothermal and so forth, uh, you know, small biomass to benefit it, but, but the lion's share of the tax credits have been used by uh, wind power developers and solar power plant developers. The solar projects historically were, were relatively expensive. Uh, if you look at the levelized cost of energy or the capital cost to produce them um, and may or may not have been as efficient. So they tended to benefit from the investment tax credit, which provides a percentage depending on where historically you're looking, but let's say 30% of, of the eligible project costs are basically refunded uh, through the investment tax credit. So the government is subsidizing the cost of projects, which were relatively perhaps expensive compared to competing technologies at the time those credits were launched. And the impact of that was to greatly expand uh, those investments, which drove down the cost of the components to the point where now solar power is uh, maybe even less expensive, but certainly you know no more expensive than incumbent fossil fuel technology. Uh, a lot of that has also, of course, been uh, benefiting from a global change in solar technology, and especially the dominance of China and Chinese-related manufacturers, um, and that's brought down the prices quite a bit to the point where you could imagine solar power producers preferring the production tax credit over the investment tax credit. Now, how does the production tax credit work? The PTC does not cover or subsidize anything related to the cost of a project. To the contrary, it subsidizes production. So if you build, say, a wind farm, which historically has benefited very much by the, from the PTC, if you build a wind farm, you're incentivized to put it in a place where, I mean, assuming you have interconnection and an offtake agreement and all the rest of it, uh, if it's the same equipment, you'd be incentivized to put it in a place where you have more wind resource and therefore can generate more kilowatt hours on an annual basis. Uh, because the production tax credit was giving you a couple of cents or more in index for inflation per kilowatt hour um, on top of whatever you were collecting from the sales of power. So a capacity factor of, say, 40% is going to give you a much higher credit than one of, say, 30% or 25%. Um, now, with the new Inflation Reduction Act, those ITC and PTC regimes uh, are being significantly liberalized. Uh, for starters, uh, solar power projects will be able to uh, elect PTC instead of ITC. And I think there, for a lot of reasons, many of them will choose to do so uh, in, in the next couple of years. Uh, longer term, the bill replaces these credits uh, with uh, uh, the ITC continues. But essentially for power generation, you get to a new clean energy tax credit, which is functions much like um, the old ITC, but it's in a technology agnostic way. And that will, I think, allow other technologies to, to really to benefit from this. The key there is that they must be producing uh, zero greenhouse gas emissions, and that will continue for the next 10 years. 
Okay, great. Thanks, Alan. Another important feature of the Act is that municipal utilities, community choice aggregators, rural cooperatives, the Tennessee Valley Authority and Native American tribes can claim the tax credits via direct pay. What effects will this have on them? Well, let's step back and see why they did not benefit before. So tax credits, uh, as I mentioned to the tax code, subsidize development, subsidize investment, uh, subsidize production, perhaps. Uh, to use a tax credit, you need to be a taxpayer. And in particular, a taxpayer with taxable income that you'd like to offset. Uh, and nonprofits and government agencies do not pay taxes, so they could not benefit from tax credits. Now they'll be on a level playing field because those non-taxpayers will be able to receive uh, direct payments from the government. Uh, those are not transferable. They can't sell them, but they can receive you know, compensation. And that would allow, for example, electric rural co-ops to invest in solar or wind or other renewables and uh, receive the same benefit of a tax credit that uh, a taxpayer might have uh, obtained had they been eligible for the credit. And an additional feature of the Inflation Reduction Act is that it will be much easier for projects to sell the tax credits to third parties. Um, what will these buyers need to be aware of and where will the biggest opportunities be for project developers to receive tax credits in cash? Yeah, it's interesting you said that it'll be much easier. Uh, I would say the transferability provisions of the law are somewhat misunderstood uh, in practice. So one of the arguments has been in the past that if I if I want to use a tax credit, I'm but I'm a developer. I have plenty of operating losses. I don't have a lot of taxable income. I, you know, I, I don't have direct pay, right? How do I use these tax credits? So I don't have taxable income that would just be lost value. There'd be no incentives, no subsidy effectively. Uh, and the classic way to do that is through a tax equity partnership where other investors, the, you know, the banks uh, that I mentioned before, for instance, that have a predictable need for tax credits because they have a predictable uh, high tax bill otherwise from other taxable income unrelated to these investments. Um, those entities would enter into a partnership in essence, functionally buying uh, the tax credits and they become legal owners, although passive owners uh, of, of the assets so that they can qualify. Um, and at some point after they've received their, their target return, their interest will step down. And, and so all they've really received is a disproportionate allocation of both tax attributes and cash distributions during that time period to reach that return. Now, people will step back and say, gee, that's really a specialized niche. That's very expensive. People have to understand it. Wouldn't it be great if we could just sell the tax credits to somebody, just transfer them. And the bill addresses that by saying, sure, uh, instead of making a single investment upfront and hoping the project works out and keeping it for several years to get your tax credits, um, what if we just let you sell it on an annual basis? So a partnership that owns, say, a, a renewable project could make an election each year on an annual basis. It's a partnership level election, not each partner. And they could transfer those credits, basically sell them to a third party who knows if it's the next year they'd, they'd like to use those. Uh, I think that's a great idea in concept, but here's where it gets a little trickier in, in practice. The person buying those tax credits, although they benefit from it only being for one year and they probably have a better visibility into their ability to use them, um, they're still taking on some risk because those tax credits, you know, the project that you're buying them from has to do the right things to make sure that they're preserving those credits can't sell the project within a certain period of time. Uh, we can't sell it to a nonprofit, which would disqualify them from earning tax credits. 
if it's a PTC, they have to still produce. They can't shut the power plant off, right? So the buyers of tax credits are going to look for indemnities, and those indemnities are going to have to come from sellers that are creditworthy with deep pockets. Uh, a lot of small developers aren't. So again, we're looking at something which in practice will appeal probably to the largest players in the market. Um, in addition, what's being sold, of course, are just the ITC or the PTC uh, or the clean energy tax credits associated with the project. Uh, a lot of the tax benefits of these investments uh, in renewables are from uh, accelerated depreciation. And depreciation is not transferred, only the tax credits would be, so there's value lost. Uh, the buyer of the tax credits cannot deduct the cost of the credit. Um, and the person selling it, of course, that therefore has no taxable income. But a tax equity investor, in many cases, can deduct uh, you know, at least a portion, maybe half of their investment. If you're looking at those situations and comparing them, uh, basis step up, there's other issues technically that make it less likely for an entity which is capable of doing the complex analysis of investing in these things, makes it less likely they want to just buy tax credits in the transferability regime, more likely they want to just go through the tax equity partnerships like they have been before. So I don't think the transferability provisions at the end of the day are really going to make that large a difference. Um, one possible exception, it is now, of course, possible for private equity or other funds, um, fund sponsors to set up funds that aggregate investors into uh, an entity which might be interested in buying tax credits um, in a way that they may not have been interested in tax equity before. Um, but you know, I, I think the jury's out really on how this is going to play out. Definitely, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. So I guess an overarching question would be, what is your overall impression of the bill in relation to the tax equity market? And do you have any specific concerns arising from the bill? Yeah, no, look, I think it's I think it's a very promising bill, not just for tax equity, but for the developers that depend on it in order to invest in, in, in new clean energy projects. Uh, certainly the bill broadens the scope as well. Uh, so there are other technologies that will benefit from this. Uh, Green or clean hydrogen certainly is one of them. Energy storage, batteries, battery technology, uh, EV manufacturing, manufacturing of other components for uh, clean energy, uh, and carbon capture uh, use and storage, so CCUS. That th those areas uh, will all benefit from additional tax credits and the rules around them uh, that make, make some of those things more attractive. Uh, from the perspective of developers, one key change, I think, in the way they do their business, uh, under the current PTC or ITC, there are rules that you build what you say you're going to build, that it, you know, the cost of the production are verified and so forth. Under the new regime going forward for the next 10 years, uh, starting at the end of 2024, uh, in order to maintain the full value of a credit, because the base credit's cut down, say, from 30% to 6% on ITC, that's multiplied back by five in order to get back to 30%. Only if you pay a prevailing wage, and in the case of production tax credit, that's not just for construction, that's also for operation and maintenance, and if you uh, hire apprentices where apprenticeship programs are available. So this is meant to be a way to bolster domestic manufacturing, domestic supply chains, uh, and domestic jobs and domestic employment, specifically training and skilled employment uh, in manufacturing and construction and operation of these facilities. Uh, there are bonus credits, by the way, on top of that, to bring it to an even higher level than the credits would be under current law if the investments are made, depending on the type of the investment, in areas that are impacted or have been impacted adversely 
by the loss, say, of coal-fired power plant jobs or coal mining jobs, what have you, uh, or if you're invested in certain other areas where um, there are economic benefits that are meant to be uh, to be utilized. Um, but on the whole, I think this is something which will broaden greatly the scope of both the appetite to benefit from these credits and therefore the number of investors looking at it. Lastly, I'd say the corporate uh, alternative minimum tax of 15%, which is included in the bill, may also make some companies pay higher taxes than they otherwise would. And here we're talking about the largest public companies. Um, and to the extent that's the case, they may you know, have more of an appetite for tax credits. Now, you asked about what I'm concerned about in the bill. I did. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there, there are, there's one thing, um, and I wrote about this uh, when the bill first came out. Uh, there is a, uh, a lot of the projects that are done for clean energy are on federal land uh, administered by the Bureau of Land Management. A lot of wind power projects, solar power projects, of course, the transmission lines that feed them um, are are on federal land. And a lot of the new offshore wind projects, of course, are all going to be subject to, unless they're in near coast state waters, they'll be under the jurisdiction of the federal government and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, the same agency that currently or historically has given uh, offshore leases for oil and gas drilling. Th those are different activities. And you can look at energy security issues. You can uh, look at you know, cost-benefit analyses and environmental impacts, and you can take a view one way or the other on whether offshore oil and gas drilling is, you know, the best thing or the worst thing in the world. What's new in this bill is it ties renewable energy leases to expanded, continued, ongoing leasing, um, both onshore and offshore, for oil and gas drilling in a way that I think could be chilling of the ability of the government to issue new leases or rights-of-way for wind and solar projects. You know, if you just look at the statistics, one of the things in the bill most recently, uh, there's an offshore oil and gas sale that was put out uh, in the Gulf of Mexico uh, in January 2021, right before the Trump administration left office. President Biden came in. He gave an executive order suspending offshore oil and gas leasing. That was postponed. Uh, later in the year, a court in Louisiana said, no, 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 no. You have to, you know, got to suspend that suspension. And uh, let's go ahead with the sale. And then later a DC court said, no, you can't do that sale because in fact, you violated the federal environmental laws. So you see this going back and forth and back and forth. Will we have this lease? Will we not have these leases? Is the sale okay or is it not okay? Uh, why does that matter? Under the current law, those again were, you know, wind and solar leases had nothing to do with, uh, with oil and gas leases. Under the new law, under the Inflation Reduction Act, under the new law, the government is now prohibited from giving any leases for offshore wind, unless within the prior year, at least 60 million acres of offshore waters have been offered for lease in uh, for oil and gas uh, drilling, and leases have in fact been issued. So if you look at the statistics, this, this sale that was set aside, sale 257, uh, finally occurred in November of 2021. It offered 81 million acres. Fine, that's over the 60 million threshold, so good um, from a point of view of qualification. Also, by, by the way, the largest offshore lease sale ever done. Only 1.7 million acres of the 81 even received bids. There were 33 bidders. The average number of bidders per block was about one. So if you bid, you probably won. There were 15,000 blocks offered for sale and 308 were purchased. So there's not this backlog of oil and gas companies just dying to get 
more of these leases. In fact, the demand for these sales, and that's a typical result for many of the, the sales in the last five or 10 years. Um, and there were eight sales in the last five-year program. If you extrapolate that going forward, as the administration now can, you know, puts together its next five-year plan for offshore oil and gas leasing, they're going to have to significantly increase the amount of land, excuse me, the amount of waters uh, offered, even though there's really not much demand for it in the oil and gas industry, as a precondition to offering offshore wind leases. And the situation on land for uh, Bureau of Land Management is, is, is similar. So uh, tying these two things together in the bill, I think, was, uh, was a, a bit of a mistake. Definitely. That's really insightful. Thanks, Alan. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much again for joining me on the podcast. It'll be really interesting to see the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act going forwards for both renewables developers and the tax equity market as a whole. Thanks so much again. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I'd just like to take a moment to remind listeners of our upcoming Proximo webinar, Hydrogen Catalyzing Electrolyzers, which will be going live on the Proximo VEP at 3pm London and 10am New York time on the 29th of September 2022. Our very own Thomas Hopkins, Deputy Editor at Proximo, will be hosting a panel of experienced market lenders and investors to discuss the evolving market conditions, financing norms and the potential outlook for hydrogen technology as the market begins to scale up. This webinar will be available live and on demand for all our subscribers. And if you're interested in a subscription, please visit our website, www.proximoinfra.com. Thanks all for listening.